that need. And there was a real hungering and thirsting that God might work. There was a particular burden when loved ones were prayed for, unconverted loved ones. I often think to myself, we go across all the churches, and if every single child of those who attended all the chapels in East Sussex was converted, our buildings would probably be full. And then you'd have baptisms. And then you'd have the unconverted people who know those people who would come along. And it, it, it only takes often one unconverted person to be saved. And all of a sudden, an opportunity, an open door arises for great proclamation. We long for revival. And I pray that you have a true burden for revival. A sovereign work of God, I do believe, uh, is the answer to the present declension in these dark days. It's to, why do I say that? On my own authority? No, because whenever the Lord's people were living through times like ours, when the foundations were destroyed, when, when God did not seem to be present in the way that we read he had done, in, has been in the past, they understood there was a need to turn to the Lord in persistent, earnest, burdened praying for God to move. Just take, for a few, example, a few portions of the Word of God where you see this come out. Psalm 60. Hear the burden of David where he says, Oh God, thou hast cast us off. Thou hast scattered us. Thou hast been displeased. Oh, turn thyself to us again. And then look at verse 10. Will not thou, O God, which hast cast us off, and thou, O God, which did not go out with our armies. You see what he's saying there? When our armies go to fight, you don't go with us. We get routed. And we feel like that when we witness. We feel so weak and so foolish and we see little power uh, on the word of God when we witness. What did David believe was the answer? Verse 11. Give us help from trouble. For vain is the help of man. You know, churches have tried this method and tried that method and this book has come out about how to grow a big and successful church. We've tried it all. We've tried this activity. We've tried this initiative. And still the land gets darker and darker. Vain is the help of man. God alone is our hope. And God alone is our help. Another individual who brings out this sense that only God can move, God is the answer, is Habakkuk. He speaks of the law going out powerlessness, powerless. He says the law's preached, the law's read, and yet it seems to go forth powerless. And lawlessness is on every side. And of course, we read from Isaiah, didn't we? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Friends, I don't know how bad things have got to get before God's people start praying with this kind of of burden. But I haven't come to speak to you this evening on necessarily how to bring about revival, for there is a degree to which we cannot, is a sovereign work of God, though God hears the prayers of his people, you see that in the scriptures. But I want to speak to you about what a true revival would look like if it came. I um, don't know how many of you are into following fads online and stuff, I don't, don't need to waste your time doing so, that there has been recently claims of revival in a place called Nashville. Now, I, I, I would be, it would be wrong of me. I could be guilty of quenching the Spirit of God to try and evaluate something I don't understand or don't know. I have not been there. I'm not here to cast any assessment on that particular revival. There are those who have concerns, and there are those who are really positive. But, but what I do want to do this evening is say, we need to be equipped as to know what it is we are actually praying for, should God bring a revival. What would it look like if God did bring a revival? What are the marks of, of true revival? 
but you might say, but that might never come in my lifetime. Well, what I would then say to you is this. Though we may not know corporate revival, you can know personal revival. I think of the uh, church at Ephesus. I was thinking about this this week. The church at Ephesus, which the love of many had grown cold there. They'd forgotten their, their first love, hadn't they? But do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? It's often a text, not criticising people that do this by any means, um, but it's often genuinely used as an evangelistic text, isn't it? In chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I'm not saying it hasn't got that kind of use. You couldn't use it in a gospel evangelistic way, for sure. But actually, this is a text for professing Christians in the church, isn't it? The love of many has grown cold at Ephesus. And the Lord Jesus is saying to the believers there, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him. Personal revival. I will come to him. So everyone else in the church is leaving the door shut. But you yourself say, come in. And he comes and what does he do? And I will sup with him. And he with me. And so I think one of the first things we should be seeking is personal renewal, personal revival, as it's displayed for us in this chapter in Nehemiah 8. But as we all seek personal revival, we may indeed find ourselves experiencing corporate revival. It starts at the individual level. I would hasten to point out to you that though we are witnessing in Nehemiah 8 a corporate revival, it began with one man, Nehemiah, in chapter 1, who had a burden when he heard about the state of the walls, or the literal absence of the walls, in Jerusalem. In chapter 1, verse 3, it's reported to him, the people in the province are in great affliction. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, gates are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words. And this is what we're missing, I think. This is, this is what we're missing. We see the problems with the church. We all see the problems. But are we affected? Now, if I could say this as a young man to older folk, if you would allow me, that, that I say it as a son to fathers, as a son to mothers. But it's very easy and tempting, I think, for the older generation to think, I've not gone long left. I'll just live out my days in peace. As long as these things don't happen in my lifetime, you know, I've got a church to go to. I've got sound ministry. But ultimately, you're just thankful that you won't be here when it all breaks, all kicks off. But if you have a concern for Zion, if you have a concern for the church of Jesus Christ, which he purchased for with his blood, you should be burdened about the state of the church that you may one day leave, that you will eventually leave behind. You should think about the, the younger generation of believers, how few they are and how are they going to stand. This should be a deep concern for you. Um, I don't say that to, to chide you. I just say that as a, as a gentle encouragement. This is the Lord's people. This is, this is the travail of his soul. This is what he died for and, and it should be your concern. Look at Nehemiah here. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and, and terrible or awesome God. Verse 6, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel. What is one of the greatest works you older saints can do? What's one of the last great exploits you can do? It can be this. Pray. Pray. It may not be that you see the blessing in your lifetime, 
but you may sow the seeds for a move of God yet ahead. Pray. If I could urge you to one thing, it would be to pray. What we are reading in Nehemiah 8 is the culmination which began with Nehemiah's burdened praying. And, near, and revival comes. This is a tremendous event. I would just note your attention to this phrase in the end of verse 73, previous to chapter 8, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now, it's easy to read that and overlook the significance of that. The children of Israel. Question. Before exile, were God's people referred to as the children of Israel? Think about that. What happened? What happened under Rehoboam? The kingdom of Israel split in two. And if you read through Kings and Chronicles, it's Judah and northern Israel. Judah and Israel. The prophets before exile, Jeremiah in particular, won't turn to all the passages. We haven't got the time on this occasion. But he speaks of a time when the northern kingdom will be reunited to Judah. Two sticks, he takes two sticks and he's to join them together. And a time when they will be referred to as one people again. And here it doesn't say Judah were in their cities. It says the children of Israel were in their cities. This is a deliberate um, mention to point out to us that God is beginning, uh, whether you think that's got Jeremiah's predictions, have got long-term promises in view for Israel, we'll avoid that controversial topic tonight. But what we can say for sure is that there is a beginning here of God establishing and reuniting his people because we know it wasn't just those from Judah who came back to the land. There were those God called and stirred up to come back from all over the exile in Assyria and Babylon. So you can be sure some from the northern tribes would have returned to this, situ this, this land of Judah. And it's interesting because we know that that must have been the case because there were many Jews, we read about this in earlier chapters, that they, their genealogy records couldn't be traced, suggesting that they, didn't, that they were lost in the exiles. A great number of people came back here. This is the rebuilding of a nation, the children of Israel. And so it's the seventh month. It's the year 444 BC. And here you have the whole population gather to hear Ezra the scribe stand on a wooden, I love the note of wooden pulpit, don't you like that? A wooden pulpit, we're okay, we've got a wooden pulpit, and to teach the law. Question, when was the last time in Israel's history that such an event like this happened, such a public event? You're welcome to shout out. Have a guess. After Moses, some sooner than Moses, Josiah. That's right, Josiah. And you could read about that in 2 Kings 23 when they found the book of the law which had lain dormant in the temple, and Josiah could not believe, when it was read before him, Josiah was pulling his hair out, he could not believe how far they had fallen, and he insisted, didn't he, on it being read, and reformation occurring. Here's another question. Was that reformation under Josiah, as wonderful as it was, and as good as it was, that Josiah was pushing God's people to hear God's word, was it a top-down movement, or a bottom-up movement, by that I mean, was it a movement that went beyond Josiah? Was there a great mass turning to God among the people under Josiah? Or what happened when Josiah died? They all went back to the idolatry. So it was a short-lived 
Reformation, really. It was a, a sincere effort from a young godly man who did what he could, but the people clearly were not persuaded in their hearts. They, 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 they outwardly conformed to the reforms, but inwardly they were not renewed. However, this is what is so different about what we're reading here. Who are the pe- Where's the request coming from that they should hear the word preached? Is it the, is it the pastor Ezra? Sort of, come on, come to church twice on the Sunday. Is it, is it him rallying the troops or are there people seeking that Ezra should preach? Verse 1. They spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. This then is a tremendous move of God. There is a hunger in the people of God for the word of God. J.I. Packer describes this chapter as Israel alive again. He says, quote, What had happened? In a word, this. The Holy Spirit has worked on these people, giving them an interest in God, a concern for divine things, and a desire for God's blessing that was altogether out of the ordinary. So as we look at what happens in this chapter, and we're going to move through briefly, you are going to hear what is a litmus test. A litmus test for you measuring your own personal health as a believer. If this is a revived people, and I want to be a spiritually minded believer, then this is a template for me to test myself. And again, if you're, it depends if you're a glass half empty or a glass half full person. I confess, I'm naturally a bit of a half empty person. So I would hear a word like this if, so, if I was sitting where you are. And I would, I would go, oh, I fall short. Or, but we can alternatively see it as an as a, as a, as a encouragement for what's possible in the Christian life. What, what we can seek God for, if it's not present in your life now, then, then you can go away and do business with God and say, I want to be this kind of Christian. Maybe it was a long time ago when you had this kind of zeal for the Lord. And you can go home and say, what happened, Lord? What happened? To you? What happened? Where did we lose? Where did I lose my intimacy with you? And this can be a moment in your life where you can say, the Lord grabbed hold of me like the good shepherd. And he said, I've not, I've not stopped seeking you. Seek me with all your heart and you will find me. So, the first thing we see in true revival in, from this chapter is this, a renewed hunger for God's word. I've obviously already brought this out to you. In Josiah's Reformation, as we've seen, it was the king requesting the people to hear God's word. Here in Nehemiah, it is the people seeking Ezra to teach God's word. It was the people who gathered, verse 1, it was the people who asked, verse 1. I love verse 4 because the pulpit had already been made. So they have been, for quite some time, it was, I don't know how long it would take to make a pulpit, I don't know how big it was, um, but they had clearly been giving pre-thought to this occasion. And they had been working on this. They were eagerly anticipating with this, so much so, Ezra turned up, oh, you've, you've made me a pulpit fit for the occasion. This is a bottom-up move of God. Ezra is preaching on the instruction and hunger of the people, not the other way round. This is a marvel. Now, let's put this in uh, the contemporary situation. And I'm not speaking of my own church here. I'm not speaking of any individual I know. I'm speaking more generally that it is true that in many churches, it's the pastor or the preacher or the elders that have to kind of galvanize the people to come to this, come to the revival prayer meeting, come to this meeting, right? It's, it's, It's desire level pushing. 
And that's a sign of bad times. It's the pastor that has to keep saying, and, and trust me, I have preached too long many times and worn out the people, and I need to get better at this. So there is such a thing as a preacher taking liberties with his hearers for sure. But is it not often the case that the pastor's got to beg, for, can I just make this one last point? Can I, just, can I just have one more moment of your time? Hearers are people that are hungry. It's seen in their attentiveness. Look at that in verse 3 at the end. All the years of the people were attentive. Um, they're not being chased. They're not being grabbed by the neck. They're eager. This is a key mark of revival. Hunger for the word of the living God. I was at the Banner of Truth conference this week. It was such a blessing. I was a dear Presbyterian brother, Terry Johnson. I don't know if any of you know of him. From the Independent Presbyterian Church. That to me, that's like Independent Presbyterian. That was a whole new discovery for me. I didn't know there was such a, a concept, but there you go. But he was preaching a wonderful series of sermons on I will build my church. And he was speaking about the evening service. And uh, I was only hearing someone recently tell me that he's having a conversation with another believer. And he said, do I have to come to two, two services? I mean, I mean, that's legalistic. Legalistic, that is. And this dear brother preached very simply. It wasn't rocket science, but it was, it was yet so profound and yet so simple. He's promised, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Why do I come to the evening service? Because he's there. It was like, because why would you not go if he's there? Let me say something. If I was in my study, and uh, dear brother rings me and says, George Whitfield's back from the dead and he's preaching in Eastbourne. I'm serious. I'm there. <laughs> I want to hear that brother whose life has had an impact on me. Um, whatever your heroes are, men or women, or just think how eager you would be. We often talk about when I'm in glory, I can't wait to speak to this person or that person. Thank you for that sermon. But surely, Jesus Christ outweighs all of them. Add, think, add the prayers of Moses. Add the patience of Joseph. Add the love of David. Add the fervor of Paul. And put it all in together into one man. And it still does not come close to the glory of Jesus Christ. As he's revealed to us in the scriptures. And the son of God. The one who is the radiance. The express brightness of the glory of God. The one in whose face shines the dazzling brightness of the goodness of God. Is wherever two or three are gathered in my name. And we're told, as he opened up the scriptures to those on the Emmaus Road, that all the scriptures speak of him. And yet people would say, professing Christians would say, Oh, I hope they don't pre he doesn't preach longer than 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Or, oh, I, do I have to come to two services? What has happened to us? What has happened to the professing church? Dear friends, hunger. Hunger is a sign of life. How do I know that my kids... Are alive, or <laughs> well, my baby is alive because they regularly ask for food in a demanding way. Give me food, or I die. 
Sometimes it feels like that. I'm starving, Dad. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Whoa. Are we starving for the word of God? I remember hearing a dear brother speak of when he uh, was going to speak. I can't remember where it was. It was somewhere like Korea or... Anyway, it was one of those kind of countries where the church is under a lot of persecution. And he was smuggled in to speak to a persecuted group of believers. And he was told he had four days with them. So he prepared one sermon per day. Yeah? That seems reasonable. Yeah? So he preached for his 40 minutes, whatever it was. And they just sat there listening. Why have you stopped? You know, this is a, this is a unique occasion. We, we haven't got you for, we got you only for a week. So then he preached his second day sermon after the first one on the first day. And they sat and said, why have you stopped? We're, we're all here. And he'd run out of all of his sermons by the end of the first day. But what am I going to do for the rest of the week? Now, now, again, we mustn't put a false condemnation. That is an exceptional and unusual time. I'm not suggesting that we should conclude from this, we should have four-hour services, or um, that we should meet six times on the Lord's Day. That would be the wrong point. The point is, with, uh, with, with the services that God has ordained for us to have and the opportunities that he's given us, have we got a hunger? Are we hungry for the word of God? I actually think, um, and you can split hairs with me over this after, you don't have to agree with me on this, but um, you know when we think of the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, I will give them a new heart, yeah, that, those, those wonderful verses where the Lord says, I think it's Jeremiah 31, verse 33, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, I will be their God and, and so on. Totally agree that that is primarily fulfilled. Well, it is. It's not, it's not a debatable point. It's, that is fulfilled when Christ shed his blood. That is the blood of the new covenant. We are the uh, inheritors of that tremendous promise. The law is no longer externally on the tablets of stone, but internally on the hearts of God's people. But I do think that some of the ultimate realities that were fulfilled at Pentecost or when Christ came began to have partial fulfillments pointing to that. We know for a fact that when Israel came back from Babylon, they were a transformed people by and large. They never worshipped on the high hills. They never worshipped Baal. And in fact, they set up synagogues in all the towns. When Jesus came at the fullness of time, there was a synagogue in Capernaum, a synagogue in Judea. There was a synagogue in every town for him to preaching. What does that show you about how seriously people took this book? There wasn't just synagogues indeed, there wasn't even just synagogues in Jerusalem or in Israel. We know from Paul's travels there were synagogues in the ancient Greek world, in Corinth, among the Jews where they'd stayed behind. Tremendous work of God had occurred and I think we often overlook overlook that. The Messiah came when he did because there were Anna and Simeon and Mary and Nathaniel, all these people whose hearts were Godward and inclined towards the Lord. Friends, we're living in a time when we have more copies of the scriptures. We have Bibles galore, different layouts, different bindings, different font sizes, study Bibles, different versions. and We spend more time arguing about different versions. And by the way, I'm not to say that there's not a place for wrestling with these issues and having opinions on them and, and coming to a conviction. But we spend so much time arguing about these things that, but are we devouring the book that we have? I have my convictions about these things. I, I, I like our AV. I like our new King James Version. We use it at our church. I, I have views about these things. But I tell you what, even versions that I'm not too fond of and I have my quarrels with and I wouldn't personally preach from, I can tell you, if a young man devoured that book as I did devouring my NIV as a 16-year-old boy, 
they could, they could live transformed lives. Yeah? The world could be changed. <laughs> right? We, we, we hold our convictions, but where's the hunger for the word of God? Have you heard the story of uh, the uh, good, um, Puritan Thomas Goodwin tells of a preacher called John Rogers? Now, John Rogers was a man who was burnt at the stake. But he tells of an occasion when Rogers was preaching on the scriptures. And he recalls that in that sermon, he fell into an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. He does something very unusual. I've never done it. I'm not planning on doing it. But he impersonates God to the people. Okay? And this is what he says. Quote, Well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in such and such a house, all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look at it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you should have my Bible no longer. And then Thomas Goodwin interjects at this point and says he takes the Bible up from the cushion and seemed as if he were going away with it, carrying it from them. But immediately he turns again and personates the people to God. He falls down on his knees and he says, Lord, whatsoever thou doest, do not take thy Bible from us. Now hear this next bit. These men were serious when they said what they said. This man, again, burnt at the stake for his faith. Kill our children. Could you say that? Burn our houses. Destroy our goods. Only spare us thy Bible. Take not away thy Bible. And you think that would be intense enough. He cranks it up even more. He then impersonates God to the people and says, Say you so? Well, I will try you a little while longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you use it, whether you will love it more, whether you will value it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. And then God's Goodwin goes on to say, He put all the congregation to so strange a posture that he never saw any congregation in his life like it. The people were uh, full of their own tears. And he told me that he himself, when he got out of the pulpit and was to take his horse again, he had to wait for a quarter of an hour upon the neck of his horse, weeping, before he had the power to mount. So strange an impression was there upon him, and generally upon the people, for their neglect of the Bible. Wow. Wow. How did this happen, this renewed hunger for the word of God? Well... You could say the simple answer is God, but God uses means. And are there anything that we can observe that preceded the revival from the human side that we could say, doesn't, if we, if we in, enforce it, doesn't guarantee a revival, but will certainly not be, it will certainly be a cultivating a... Let's put it this way, you cultivate your garden, you can't make things grow unless sunshine and rain happens at a certain rate. But if you didn't cultivate your garden, if the sunshine and rain grows, you're not going to have a beautiful garden, are you? So what we're asking is, can we, as the Lord's people, do certain things? Can we, can we pursue a certain practice that is conducive, that's the right word, for God to work? And here's what I learnt when I was looking at this passage that I'd never actually seen before. Question, how long do you think Ezra had actually already been in Judea for? The answer to that is 14 years. Now, what do you think he was doing all that time? 
preaching, teaching. Ezra 7, verse 9 to 10 reads, On the first day of the month he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the month he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So God's good hand was on Ezra because he had a desire that the word of God would be systematically read, explained, and, call, and, and God's people called for a response as it is applied. And yet for 14 years you don't read of anything too dramatic happening. In fact, you read of bad things happening like uh, intermarriage and Nehemiah has to tear his garment and pull his hair, the beard of his hair out of his beard. It's not easy going. His first 14 years in the ministry in Judea is not an easy ministry. But it seems the patient plodding and systematic reading has produced in God's people a hunger that wasn't previously there. We can be sure he would have read from Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verses 10 through to verse 13, which reads as follows. At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women, and I'll note this, and little ones. Yeah? Don't send them out to do colouring in the back room. They are to be gathered to hear the law of God, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. He read that, and it seems the people heard that, and so they go back to Ezra on the seventh year, seventh month, and say, why don't you do that? We're here. Now, just to apply, apply this to you specifically, as I was thinking about this, I don't know where you're at in your search for a pastor. It's not for me to probe. It's none of my business. I don't know what um, encouragements you've had or discouragements have had. I don't, I don't even know how long you've, had, you've been praying. I don't know how, whether you've given up. Maybe you've given up. But what I would say to you is this. Make this an urgent plea. Do not give up. Um, it's always a bit awkward as a pastor saying pray for pastors because it can sound arrogant, can't it, I think. It, well, it could be heard that way. It can sound like a sort of, the, that these men are the answer. It's not that they themselves are the answer. I'm a foolish, as weak as you are, but, but God has given gifts to the churches. Ephesians 4, he gave sons to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, uh, for ministry, that we would come to the fullness and stature of Christ. And therefore, in one sense, though it's true, the Lord Jesus is your chief shepherd. He is ordained to shepherd you through his under-shepherds. And so you have, obviously, elders, you thank God for them. But, but do long and pray and, and, and don't lose heart. Think about the generation after you. You know, one of the things that really encouraged me about the deacons at Eastbourne when I was talking with them, I don't think they'll mind me sharing this, it's, it's not a bad thing, it's a positive thing. Um, when I sat down with them as a younger man, it was humbling for me to speak to three older saints who've been Christians longer than I've been alive. It's, it's just, it was, for me, it was just a very bizarre situation to be in. But they said to me, for a while we thought we were looking for an older man, but now we realise this is not just about our present needs, this is about the next 10, 15, 20 years. We believe God has called us to find a man that, God willing, will be a preacher here when we're gone. Now, that's in the Lord's hands. 
I don't know if that desire will be come to fruition. I pray that it does. But that's the kind of vision that you should be having. 14 years of Ezra's preaching, and all of a sudden, God came. God came. God worked. I remember preaching itinerantly at a chapel which had been without a pastor for about three or four years. And I got talking to this dear sister, bless her. But she, she said to me after, I said, I'll, I'll be praying for you, that the Lord will bring you an under Oh, she said, um, oh, it's okay. We quite enjoy having itinerant ministry and we're not too concerned. Now, okay, yes, th- there's a real blessing to itinerant ministry. But here's the thing, it's a secret. Every, every itinerant preacher knows it. They bring their favourite sermons. It's true. Because they want to be invited back. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying there aren't some that won't. I have occasionally taken a sermon. I felt convicted and burdened to preach it, but I wasn't often invited back after. Um, but, you, but you see, you will have significant gaps, parts of God's word that you may have read privately, but you've not heard them preached publicly with authority that have not been brought to bear. And that's the danger for a congregation which doesn't have systematic, consecutive, expository preaching and application from the word of God. I'll tell you what, preaching doesn't solve problems, it causes problems. It's my experience. Preaching is just the beginning through which you preach and then God does his work and that's when pastoring happens. <laughs> As God's people are processing truth in their lives. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Also, when you say, well, what kind of man should we be looking for? What kind of preacher should we be looking for? Um, well, what, what drew my attention to this, this question was the location of his preaching. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, he could have taught in the temple courts. He could have gathered them into a more religious location, perhaps. But where is it that he preached? Where did he preach? Verse 1, the water gate. The water gate. This was not where the altar was, but it was actually where the centre of city life was. It was the place that was known for trade, commerce, and it was here they wanted the scriptures read and applied. Now, I want to say something that might clash with some of your opinions, because this is a very popular opinion today, but it's unbiblical in my opinion. And it is this, the preaching should never address politics. The preaching should never address life. Dear friends, it's that kind of view that allowed the church to not challenge Nazism in the day. It's why so few pulpits, because people have imbibed this view, keep it to just the narrow religious sphere. But what would you have politics be governed by? Because if it's not God's law, it will be another law. What would you have education be governed by? Because if it's not God's law, it will be another law, it will be something of man. And them gathering in the Watergate to hear the word of God read, when they would have looked around to see all the visible signs of trade and commerce, it was to simply say, God's word is to be applied to God's world. God's word is to be applied to all of God's life. There is to be no area under heaven for which the Lord is sovereign that is not to be called to heed the word of the Lord. Even the civil magistrate in Romans 13 is called God's servant. And so the church and the state are to be separate, but the church is to call the state to heed the word of God and fulfil its obligations to the God to whom they have been appointed by. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This is a, now don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean the preacher is to preach politics. There's a big difference. 
The preacher's not preaching vote red or vote blue or vote yellow or whatever the colours are. But the preacher is where the word of God addresses the current affairs of the day is to apply the word of God to those affairs. But this view is rejected, I believe, from experience and talking to other brothers in the ministry from the majority of English pulpits today. That if you touch on anything that's outside of just the immediate kind of religious concerns of the church, you, you are in trouble. They wanted the law to speak to the civil life, the civic life, and the religious life of the people. That's what Reformation is. That's what Reformation is. That's what Calvin was about in Geneva. It's what all God's people have been about. Whatever your churchmanship, whatever denomination you are in, however you tie up the knots of church and state and all these kinds of things, what I think we can all agree on across all groups is the standard by which all men live is this book. And if men, as I said, if men won't be governed by this, they'll be governed by something else. And we're seeing that now. I think we're seeing the consequences of that theology. And I think the church has had a responsibility in this. We have failed to be a prophetic voice to our culture. We have failed to thunder out the law of God to convict us sin. We need to speak and we need to pray that God would raise up men in pulpits, but also men in political life, who would bring, a, a, a thus says the Lord, a burden to all of life. The, standard should, the, 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 the statement should be, by what standard do you do this? By what standard do you believe this? By what standard? Is it God's standard or is it your own standard? Well, time's escaping me. Um, I'll skip the second point. And I'll just be brief on the last. So there's a renewed hunger for the word of God. But there's lastly a restored centrality of God's word. You think, what's a, there's a slight difference. One speaks of internally what's going on, a hunger for the word of God. But the sec, this, this point speaks of how that hunger shows itself externally. Yeah, and there is a link between the internal and the external. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is going on in the people will show itself in, dare I even say, how a chapel is designed. You know, we have a younger generation, my generation has grown up today, and they sort of just assume, they come into a chapel like this, and just go, oh, it's just tradition. There's no awareness that someone might have actually wrestled with the best way to lay out a chapel. And our forefathers, again, when they were breaking away from Rome and breaking away from the church, they even thought to, uh, to how a building should be designed, how the chairs should be, uh, what should be the central attraction. They thought about these things because they were seeking all of life to be governed by the scriptures. And what do we see about a, a people who are hungry for the word of God? The centrality of the word of God. They build Ezra a platform, a pulpit for him to stand on. How long? Were they listening to him, him for six hours? Six hours. That's ex there's, there's exertion there. The fact that there's a pulpit shows you that they are people who see themselves as not being an authority over the word, but an authority under uh, the word. Today, I, we're moving away from pulpits to music stands, aren't we? Now, it's not a sin. Let's, let's be clear about that. There's a difference between a sin. But I would say that it does demonstrate 
visibly something that's happened internally. It's just a music stand on the side and the band essential. What does that say has become the central thing? The music. But our forefathers put pulpits and big ones often in the centre with a table underneath with the ordinances to say the central things in this church is the proclamation of scripture and keeping the ordinances as they've been delivered to us until he comes. It wasn't a coincidence. They didn't just happen to fall into this. They fought long and hard about this. A contemporary of mine was, was, was taken over from a church with a notable preacher. I won't say Hugh. And there was the upper pulpit and then there was a lower music like lectern at the bottom. And uh, he, he didn't feel like he could stand in his, his uh, predecessor's shoes. So he, he kind of fumbled his way to the lower lectern. Well, this dear older brother, retired gentleman, wrote to this gentleman and said to him, get back up into that pulpit, dear, you know, dear brother. And uh, the following Lord's Day, he was in the pulpit because he wanted a young, this young man to know, you are not on authority, you have no authority, but this book has authority. And you need it to be seen that it has authority. I might be wrong in this, but I think I've read once, I can't remember where I got it, it's one of those things, but I'm on the understanding that in Scotland, under John Knox's ministry, I think when... He would be sitting on the chair, and um, the, day, the, door, the Bible would be brought into the building, um, and it would be carried on a cushion. And as it was carried, there was a call to attention, like you have at a wedding. Please stand. They all stood. The, the Bible would be brought then. It would be laid on the pulpit, and John Knox then would, everyone would sit, and then John Knox would stand. The point being, this book is the authority, not John Knox, and, and not the congregation. Now, We'd be stupid just to replicate that. We'll just, it'd be a, but, but you get the, the point there, the, the why they were doing this thing. Notice in verse 5 it says, He opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was also standing above the people so they could all hear it. Um, friends, let us not be ashamed to stand before a younger generation who are chasing every fad. Let us not be afraid to say not everything new is better. Don't reject the wisdom of your fathers without serious thought and meditation. We're not saying that something is simply right because it was always done. That, that would be also a mistake to make. Some traditions do need to change. But we should be wary of assuming that everything that our forefathers have given to us, the way we worship, that just because maybe we're not seeing the visible blessing on it that we would love to, that all of a sudden we've got to throw it all out and say it's wrong. As I said, this hadn't happened since the time of Josiah, but it was right. Just because something doesn't produce results doesn't mean it's wrong. The question isn't, what does it produce? The question isn't, is it true? Is it right? Has God said? And as I said, this was a turning point in Israel. There's an emphasis actually now already away from the temple because obviously the Shekinah glory is gone, hasn't it? We, we know that from Ezekiel. Ichabod, the glory has departed. An emphasis moved now to individual synagogues where the scriptures uh, would be read and preached. You remember when Paul, what was the temple, what was the synagogue? One of your brothers might know, sisters might know when um, they said to him, have you got a word of exhortation for the people? That's what they asked him to do. They'd read from the law and he said, have you got an exhortation for the people. What we're going to see here is, we're just coming with finishing now. What we're to see here is, how simple is this event? There's no flashing lights. 
there's no great music. There's just a man who loves God and loves his word, a people who love God and want his word, a pulpit so that this man can preach God's word to a people who love God's word, and prayer, and that's it. That's revival. I'm always suspicious of a revival when um, it's centred, and again, I'm going to be, try and be precise, because I'm, I'm talking about how God ordinarily works, not God can sometimes work in ways that he doesn't ordinarily work, so I won't make a sweeping statement, but I'm normally suspicious when a revival is centred on music, on singing. Now, I believe that 05, 1905 was a true revival, but it has been said by many lovers of what God did at that time that it might have been stronger and, and had a greater impact than it even did if it had been more centred on the preaching of God's word, though there was preaching, as I understand it, in that revival. But, but singing was very central in that revival. But what you see here is a word-centred revival. Are you tempted to lose heart? Even if deep down you know that what those other churches that get all the young people are doing, even if you know deep down that it's not right, it's not biblical, even if intellectually you could say to someone, oh, well, I don't think we should do that, we shouldn't do that, do you... Because I'm saying this because I'll be honest, I feel like this. It's not what I believe intellectually, it's how I feel. Do you sometimes just wonder, like, are we missing something? Like, um, maybe, maybe we are too rigid or maybe we have got wrong views. Yeah, I don't know. I have those doubts in my heart. I sometimes internally wrestle with myself. But the question actually, it comes back to this. Is God enough? Is God enough? Is the word enough? When Jesus was preaching, and he says, you know, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and the crowds that had followed him at that point, this was getting too weird for them now. They wanted him to be king. They wanted him to bring a political empire. They loved the signs and the wonders, but now he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and feeding on the Son of Man. And we're told in John 6, many departed from him to seek other things. What did Jesus say to his own disciples? Will you also go away? <laughs> Will you go away? And I believe the Lord will say to what's left of us in the remnant, in, in, the, in, the, in the ever de diminishing church in the West, will you also go away? Will you chase after fads? Will you chase after services where you get a little emotional pump, but it doesn't actually sustain you for the week? Will you also go away? And our reply needs to be what the disciple says. You have the words of eternal life. Where else will I go? A pastor friend once told me, he had a Pentecostal brother come to his services. And this, this brother preaches for an hour. He also has an exposition of the psalm in the service. So this is an intense service, right? And his brother's come from a Pentecostal church where you have an hour of singing, not preaching. And he was coming consecutively for a while. And all of a sudden he wasn't there. So my brother chases up with him and says, what happened? We've missed you. I've gone back to the Pentecostal church. And uh, the pastor said to him, can I ask why? Was there some, something wrong with the preaching? Or was it not blessing your soul? I said, oh, it blesses my soul. In fact, indeed, I feast on it through the week. But I don't get that immediate emotional fix that I get at the Pentecostal church. And I need it. How tragic. Do you see the power of this fleshly generation and the pull it has on the 
the fleshly instincts of people. We need to seek something better. We need to seek the living God. We need to follow him. We need to go where he is. We hold then to biblical preaching, biblical worship, biblical witness, biblical living. And we pray and trust that God in his good and gracious timing will yet revive us and rend the heavens and come down. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, we thank you for thy word. Take not the word of God from us. The greatest judgment you can bring on the land is a famine of the hearing of the word of God. Save us from such a disaster. Have mercy on us all, Lord. Have mercy most of all upon your under-shepherds, your pastors. For we, we have not treasured this book enough. And at times we have been cowardly and failed to say all that it says. Oh Lord, we pray that there would be a reawakening of the responsibilities of those who are called to preach your word. And we pray there would be a renewed appetite to match that in the congregations that hear your word. And that there might yet be a visitation from thy great presence by the Spirit of God among the people of God. How we need thee, Lord. Without thee we are a wilderness, we wither and we decay. And so we pray in the midst of the years, revive all thy people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three six six, all glory to God in the sky, and peace on earth be restored. O Jesus, exalted on high, appear our omnipotent Lord.
mercy and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.